Now, you've got your uh, paper on Malachi in front of you. I think you do. I hope everyone does. If you don't, we'll get one to you. Uh, as with all of them that we've done, there is a simple outline, and there is an elaborated outline. I'm going to go ahead and tell you that tonight I may, I may use neither. Now, that's dangerous when you're a preacher, because sometimes when you, you don't know where you're going, you go everywhere. But I'm going to trust the Lord to help me tonight. Uh, we're going to do it a little bit different. I hope that's okay. Uh, this far along in the game, there's not much you can do to me if it's not. Amen? So, uh, <laughs> I may just keep you here till 1130 and uh, preach at you the whole time. No, I, I won't do that, I promise. But we do have a simple outline and an elaborated outline. And uh, the, I, I'm awful impressed with the elaborated outline for this. because four short little chapters, and he manages to outline almost every word of it. But he does a fine job of doing it. Look at the introduction material, and it's very short, and we'll read it tonight. It says, Malachi, the last prophet of the Old Testament, like John the Baptist, the first prophet of the New Testament, was simply the voice of one crying in the wilderness. We do not know where or when Malachi was born. We know nothing about his parents, his pedigree, or his occupation. Malachi was just a voice in the gathering gloom. His name means my messenger. The Latin translation is Angelicus. Hence, Malachi has been called the unknown prophet with the angel name. By the time of Malachi's prophecy, about 396 B.C., the previous actors in the drama of the repatriation of the Jewish people, Zerubbabel, Joshua, Haggai, Zechariah, Ezra, Nehemiah, were all gone. Decline had set in. Among some of the people, there was a spirit of smugness and complacency that eventually produced the Pharisaic party. Among other Jews, there was a spirit of skepticism and worldliness that eventually produced the Sadducean party. Sacrilege and profanity marked the religious attitude of the people. Witchcraft, adultery, perjury, fraud, and oppression were the more obvious of their moral and social offenses. The sin of robbing God was widespread. God's patience was far spent. It was time for revival or ruin. Let me just pause there. I, I like that phrase because I think we're in the same condition in our country today. There's there's nowhere else to run. There's nowhere else to hide. Uh, the moral majority won't fix it. Uh, it's going to be revival or ruin. God's people must get a hold of God, and God must get a hold of God's people. And if that doesn't happen, there's no hope for our country. And there's no hope even for the church in our country, uh, except maybe just a, a small few. There was a desperate need for a fresh visitation from God, and God sent Malachi. With the boldness of a spiritual hero, the lone prophet confronted priests and people alike, but the Jews refused him. So the snug little land of Judah would soon be shaken by troubles, persecutions, war, and ideological onslaughts unlike any it had known before. One of the richest things you can do for your Bible study is you study the Word of God. And I very rarely encourage people to go to anything extra scriptural uh, to enrich their Bible study. I, I, I have a lot of commentaries. I don't think that's a bad thing. I think a good book of maps will help you a lot. One of the most important things you can do is understand what took place in the 400 years between the Old Testament and the New Testament. Uh, there's a lot of things that just kind of show up in the New Testament. You don't really know where they've come from. In fact, when you end the narrative of the Old Testament, the narrative of the Old Testament ends with the finishing of the temple. Uh, it seems as though they're on the right track. 
We learned something from the prophecy of Malachi concerning their spiritual condition shortly after that. But we really don't know a lot from Scripture concerning the history. You come to the New Testament, all of a sudden you have the Pharisees, which were not in the Old Testament, at least not as an organized public group. Uh, you have the Sadducees, and the Sadducees were very similar to the Pharisees, at least in their quote-unquote outward piety, but they were much more liberal in their theology and ideology. And uh, the main difference was that the Sadducees denied the bodily resurrection of the dead. Uh, that heresy still exists today, and it exists in a lot of seminaries and a lot of theologians that uh, deny the bodily resurrection of the dead, and they try to spiritualize everything in the Bible. There are spiritual things in the Bible, and the Bible makes it plain when it's dealing with something that's spiritual. But as a fundamentalist, and by the way, I'm not ashamed of that term. Uh, I don't think we need to be ashamed of it. People are all, you know, you hear people as a springboard for compromise saying today, well, you know, that word fundamentalist, that's associated with Islam and so on and so forth. Anybody that can't tell the difference between an Islamic fundamentalist and a Christian fundamentalist is crippled too high for crutches. Amen? I mean, there's no question there's a difference. And I am a fundamentalist. I'm not ashamed to say that. I believe in the fundamentals of uh, the Christian faith, and I believe in the Word of God. And uh, as a fundamentalist, I believe in the literal interpretation of the Bible. Now, some people misunderstand what that means. Some people uh, take that to mean the literal application of the Bible. But as a dispensationalist, not, listen, I'll get to Malachi here in a second, but I, I, I told you if I didn't do it with an outline, it's going to be rough, amen? We'll get the plane landed, but we may have to take the scenic route. As a dispensationalist, I cannot be a literalist in the application of my Bible. In this sense, that I have to understand that God dealt with man in different ways in different dispensations. What he wrote for the Jew, he wrote for the Jew. There may be a spiritual application to me as Gentile, but the literal application uh, as a dispensationalist cannot be applied. In other words, God doesn't expect me to offer sacrifices. That's what Paul wrote the book of Galatians about, and the book of Hebrews about. Uh, there, I, I, I'm not to wear phylacteries and long robes and, and you know, with blue hem around it and, and uh, to, to not mar the corners of my hair, the corners of my beard, and so on and so forth. Uh, and by the way, anybody that tells you that it's, it, that it's scripturally dishonest to be a dispensationalist, and a lot of people will say that. They don't say it in those words, but you know what they'll say? When you, for instance, say something against homosexuality, and homosexuality is a sin, it's a sin. Um, some folks say, well, it's just like any other sin. No, it's not like just any other sin. Uh, it's an abomination to God. Now, there are other things that are an abomination to God as well, uh, and, and they're a, a, a stench in the nostrils of God. Uh, but anybody that says homosexuality is the same thing as, uh, you know, uh, missing a church service or, uh, you know, uh, maybe losing your temper, they're not being scripturally honest. A lot of times people that will say, uh, you know, try to be advocates of, of sodomites and, and what they call an alternate lifestyle will say, well, if we lived according to the Old Testament, uh, then, you know, we, we'd stone people for uh, wearing, you know, mixed mixed uh, blend clothes. And, uh, you know, we'd stone people for, uh, you know, if the sun got rebellious, we'd stone them to death and so on and so forth. No, uh, that's not so. That was written for the Jewish people or them as a people. Uh, God did expect them to apply that literally. Uh, as Gentile living in this day of grace, it's scripturally accurate to understand that we're not bound under the law anymore. There is a moral truth to be gained from every single portion of the Old Testament. We ought not tear it out and throw it away, but we ought to operate under grace. 
That's being scripturally honest. But to, be, to interpret the Bible literally means that I believe this Bible for exactly what it says. If it tells me that there was a man named Jonah and he was swallowed by a great fish that was prepared of God, I believe that. Uh, I have no struggle with it. A wise man once said this, that if you can believe the first verse of the Bible, you ought not have any problem with the rest of it. If you can believe that in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth, then why in the world would you have trouble believing he can prepare a great fish? I believe that. I believe that God stopped the mouths of the lions in the den when Daniel was bound. I believe that God preserved them in the fiery furnace. I believe all these things. I interpret the Bible literally. And uh, if there's a place where truth is spiritual and is to be understood and applied spiritually, the Bible always teaches us how and tells us and gives us uh, guidelines, parameters of when and where to do that. The Sadducees, in their day, just as liberal theologians in our day, try to spiritualize the bodily resurrection away. Uh, that causes a lot of problems with your theology, but more than that, it's a gateway to spiritualize everything in the Bible. And spiritualizing scriptural truth is just a means of, uh, of rendering the Word of God irrelevant. Because if it means something different to you than it means to me, then there's no baseline for what's right and what's wrong. But I'll tell you tonight that this book gives us what's right and what's wrong. No prophecy of the scriptures of any private interpretation. It was not given in old time by the will of man, but holy men of God spake as they were moved by the Holy Ghost. That's how this book came to us. And I am a literalist in the way that I interpret the word of God. So the Sadducees turned up. Uh, they together formulated the Sanhedrin, the ruling uh, religious and political body there in uh, Israel at large, but particularly in Jerusalem. Uh, synagogues all of a sudden surface. They, the synagogues, there's no uh, format or formula for synagogues in the Old Testament. Uh, but during the time when uh, the Restoration Temple was vacant and had been somewhat laid waste during the Seleucid Wars, uh, synagogues became a means, centers of teaching for Jewish people. Uh, so as you begin to understand what takes place in, in between the two Testaments, that will unfold a lot of what was taking place in the four Gospels. And it will give you a lot of color and a lot of background to some of the statements that Christ made. And we'll look at a few of them tonight as we study through the book of Malachi. But Malachi is the gateway. It is the closing of a door, but it also presents to us the context in which the Messiah came. And as such, I think it's one of the most important books in the Word of God. It's basically, if you break it down, just a series of questions between God and between man. Uh, God takes a very personal viewpoint in the book of Malachi. And he begins to ask, it's very interesting to me, because he's not really functioning dealing with Judah as a nation and Israel as a nation, because those two nations are gone. All you have now is just this remnant, this repatriated group of people that have gathered back and rebuilt the temple and rebuilt the walls and now have fallen into backsliddenness and complacency and apostasy. And so almost with a father's plea, you see this just heart-rending uh, display of God's care and concern and love, but also in the indignation that God felt at the way they behaved. So I want us to look at it tonight. Let's just take a few moments and, and we'll just sort of read through and make some comments. Let's look at verse number one. The word of God says, The burden of the word of the Lord to Israel by Malachi. I have loved you, saith the Lord. Yet ye say, Wherein hast thou loved us? Was not Esau Jacob's brother, saith the Lord? Yet I loved Jacob, and I hated Esau, and laid his mountains and his heritage waste for the dragons of the wilderness. Whereas Edom saith, We are impoverished, but we will return and build the desolate places. 
Thus saith the Lord of hosts, they shall build, but I will throw down. And they shall call them the border of wickedness, and the people against whom the Lord hath indignation forever. Your eyes shall see, and ye shall say, the Lord will be magnified from the border of Israel. So as the Lord opens this discourse, he begins it by saying this, I have loved you. Now what's the context to this? Remember, this little group of Jewish people, they've come back with such high hopes. I mean, understand that, it, that and there's going to be a lot of vilifying sort of take place in the book of Malachi, and appropriately so, because God knows the human heart. And it's up to God to call sin exactly what it is, and there's nothing wrong with him doing that. But as we look at this group of people, understand these are the same people that, pair, that risk peril and danger and death to leave the comforts of Babylon and come back to Israel to a place that they expected it to be like the Garden of Eden. And they walked in and it was just a waste-howling wilderness. And they've worked and they've labored and they've toiled and they've rebuilt the temple and they've sort of built somewhat of a life. And as they're there, the Lord breaks through the silence and says, I have loved you. He's anticipating the cry of their heart. And this was what they were saying. Wherein hast thou loved us? This is how they were feeling. If I could be so bold as to, to assume that. This is what they were feeling. Lord, we tried to serve you, and where has it got us? You must not love us very much. Lord, we left when others didn't leave. We forsook the comfort and safety and riches of Babylon. I mean, understand, it didn't take long when they went into exile for them to quit viewing it as exile and start viewing it as an excursion into the money-making business and into comfort. I mean, when they were in Babylon, they, they after so many years, they, they were doing pretty well. And uh, when given an opportunity to return, only about 50,000 even came back. Only about 75 priests returned. So they think to themselves, you know, we're not the ones doing something wrong. We're, we're the ones that have done something right. And now things aren't going how we expect them to go. Have you ever felt like that? I have. I felt like Asaph did, the, the psalm leader there in the temple, when he said, I have cleansed my hands in vain, or cleansed my heart in vain and washed my hands in innocency. Asaph says, I've served the Lord and it's gotten me nowhere. And they say to the Lord, how have you loved us? How exactly have you loved us? Now, I'm not trying to romanticize that notion. And I'm not trying to make it seem like just because it's human that it's okay. Because God then gives them a history lesson. He says this, you ask me how I've loved you. He says, my love for you above all other nations began distinctly, particularly at the point of Jacob and Esau. When you look at the history, God called Abraham out of pagan darkness. And Abraham had only one legitimate son to be the heir. Now, he had Ishmael, but God never promised Hagar that her son would be the one from whom the Messiah would come. God promised Sarah and Abraham. So there was no dispute over who was the promised son. But then Isaac has Jacob and Esau. And now there's a question. That family lineage can only go two different directions. And the Lord says this, and I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna delve into all these things about God's sovereignty. God is a sovereign God. Uh, you know, God, God wasn't able to be sovereign if he didn't know everything. But he knows everything. And so his sovereignty is justified. Uh, God doesn't make choices for us. We make choices. God's just so sovereign that he's already accounted for our choices. Right? 
Okay, let me put it this way. God's so sovereign, he's not afraid of your free will. I know some would have us to believe God's so sovereign that he overrides our free will. But for him to override our free will would be an admission of the shortcoming of his sovereignty. You see, if he's truly in control, then he's in control enough to let us make choices. And he is in control that much. But he says this, the family lineage could have gone one of two ways. Could have gone with Jacob or with Esau. He says this, you ask me how I've loved you. He said, when given a choice, Jacob, have I loved and Esau, have I hated? Now, again, I'm not going to get into it, but we cannot divorce that decision from those boys' own free will decisions and choices. But that's not the truth that God's trying to drive home to us. What he's trying to say is this, I've loved you ever since I loved Jacob. I could have just as easily loved Esau in that same way if Esau had made the same choices. But he says, where are Esau's people now, the Edomites? says they've been destroyed. They both were uh, caught in the heavy hand of the Babylonians. And yet, despite all of the best guesses of the political strategists, here you are back in the land. And there they are, desolate. And they have hopes and dreams to rebuild their country, the Edomites do, the descendants of Esau. But they never will. But you, you'll be there to see it when they're utterly destroyed. Let me just say this. When we get to wondering if God loves us or not, it'd do us some good just to take a minute and have a history lesson. Look back over all the times when God showed us mercy, when God cared about us, when he watched over us, when he provided for us. How many times when we were, I mean, in the throes of rebellion, and God dealt with us in mercy and grace and in compassion. So they say, wherein hast thou loved us? God says, I've loved you in that I've kept you. I've loved you in that I've cared for you. And I've loved you in that I've conquered those that stood against you. Verse number six, a son honored his father. And a servant is master. This is God speaking. If then I be a father, where is mine honor? And if I be a master, where is my fear, saith the Lord of hosts unto you, O priests, that despise my name? And ye say, wherein have we despised thy name? He says this, a father would receive honor from his son, and a master would receive honor from his servant. And yet you claim every day when you go in the temple that I am your father and I am your master. And I've been a father to you, God says. I've kept you, I've cared for you, I've watched over you. He says, but where is my honor? And then they ask this question. He says, you priests that have despised my name. And they say, wherein have we despised it? Now, I want you to stop and think about this for just a moment. Is it possible for a Christian to despise the name of the Lord and not even know they're doing it? I'd say that the book of Malachi teaches us it is so. That it is possible. I'm not saying they weren't aware they were sinning, but you see, we're always aware that we're sinning. We just, we're not aware of what our sin really is. Let me give you an example. And please don't get upset at me because I, I make mistakes just like you do. I'm prone to these things just like you are. Don't think I'm being too harsh on you. But let me give you an example. When we worry, we're implying and saying to God that he cannot be trusted. Isn't that true? When, when we're unfaithful to him, we're implying that he's of little value and not worth our time. And when we sin, we're implying that what the devil has is better than what the Lord has. Oh, I know that isn't the thought process that goes through our mind. But you see, sin has consequences. And understand that, that we're measured not by, uh, not necessarily always by our intentions, but definitely by our actions. I understand God does measure our intentions as well. 
well, listen, we're, we're not a bunch of people. We're, we're not a bunch of pagans living out in bush country that don't own a Bible and that have never heard a preacher. We know truth. We know truth. We live in one of the most truth-rich countries in the entire world, world probably the most truth-rich country in the entire world. You can throw a rock and hit a church that preaches at least some truth. They may not preach the whole council, but they preach some truth. I mean, we're not ignorant. And when we live in a way that is dishonoring the Lord, we're despising His name. We're counting His Isn't that what it means to despise something? It means to count it of little value. The Lord says, when you don't honor me, you're counting me of little value. They say, how have we done this? Verse 7, ye offer polluted bread upon mine altar. And ye say, wherein have we polluted thee? In that ye say, the table of the Lord is contemptible. And if ye offer the blind for sacrifice, is it not evil? And if ye offer the lame and sick, is it not evil? Boy, if there's ever a convicting phrase in the word of God, a convicting question, here it is. He says, offer it now unto thy governor. Will he be pleased with thee or accept thy person? Say the Lord of hosts. The Lord says this, you've asked how you despise my name. He says, when you offer polluted bread to me, it despises my name. When you give less than your best, it despises my name. When you give less than what you could give, you offer polluted bread. When you offer the blind or the sick or the lame, this is under the assumption that there's there's better and more in the flock that could be offered and given, but we choose not to. In other words, when we give less than our best. I said last night in, uh, in preaching, I guess it was last night, I can't remember, everything runs together right now. But I said in preaching last night, I, you know, I was talking about, I guess it was yesterday morning, but my marriage and my wife, and, uh, you know, let me tell you something. Most of us, if we treated our spouse the way that we treat God, they'd walk out on us in a moment. It says, offer it now to thy governor. In other words, thy master. Or if you want, man, if you want to say your wife, I won't be mad at you. Offer it now to thy governor. That's secular authority. Most people, if they treated their jobs the way they treat church, they'd be fired within the first day. Now, I'm not fussing at you. You're here on a Monday night. A lot of places you could be other than here. I understand that. The people that are in this room, I mean, these are a faithful crowd, whether our church or your church. I understand. I'm not fussing at you. But that's the truth that God is teaching. Did you ever have a job where you went in in a bad attitude and they told you to shape up or ship out? I worked customer service, uh, well, some, I mean, I sold auto parts, that's not really, you know, but I dealt with public. I hate dealing with the public. Hate it. Absolutely despise it. I'd sooner dig ditches. And uh, sometimes you go into work, and man, you'd just be having a bad day. I remember one time I, I went into work, I, I'll try to be, I'll try to hurry. But I remember one time I went into work, and I hadn't been working there very long. And this boy came in, and he uh, he used to work there, and everybody knew him. And I, But I didn't know him. And he was, this was just sort of his personality. He was jokey. He didn't mean anything by it. But uh, one of the bad habits when you work in an auto parts store is the second people come through the door, they start telling you everything about your car or their car. So you're like 40 feet from your computer where you can look up the information. And they're like 40 foot from it, and they'll come through the door and they'll start saying, you know, 1984 Chevy C10, 350, you know, white, 
red seats, everything. And so he comes in and he starts rattling off all this info about his car. And I, I learned already not to interrupt someone. Just go to your computer and say, can you please repeat that? And uh, he came in and he said that. And I, and I walked to the computer and I said, I'm sorry, sir, I didn't get that. Can you, re- can you repeat that? And he said, what are you, deaf? Now, I'm not an important man. Uh, and there are certain people I love enough that they can talk to me like a dog. But a total stranger better be careful talking to me that way. Especially when I'm in a bad mood, which I was that day. And I just looked at him and paused. And I turned to the guy next to me and I said, you better help this guy because I'm about to go over the counter at him. <laughs> you know, you can't do that when you're dealing with the public. You can't do that. Most people treat the people they love worse than they treat a total stranger. And that truth applies in a very distinct way to our relationship with an almighty God. Most of us, if we treated God the way, or if we treated people in society the way that we treat God, there wouldn't be anybody that had anything to do with us. And sometimes it's just good to reevaluate our situation. At least it is for me. It says when you give less than your best, you're offering polluted bread. And society wouldn't accept that. Why should the Lord? In the midst of this, Malachi's voice breaks through verse 9. He says, And now I pray you beseech God that he will be gracious unto us. This hath been by your means. Will he regard your persons, saith the Lord of hosts. Now this is very interesting what's said here. A few things are noted. One, it's noted that only a divine intervention of grace can remedy their situation. You know what we need when we grow bored with the almighty God of the universe? We need a fresh glimpse of Him, and we need a fresh wind from heaven. All of the resolve, all of the determination, that will only carry you so far. When you fall out of love with Jesus Christ, the only remedy is to fall right back in love with Him. we got a lot of people that, that I'm talking homes have been wrecked. I'm talking about kids have gone wayward. I, I'm talking about churches have been destroyed with people trying to fake it till they make it. And wearing that mask that they put on every Sunday. You know, you've seen them. Maybe you've been that person. I've been that person a time or two. I understand there is a degree of resolve required in anything that you do. I understand that there's times that we we praise the Lord in spite of how we feel, not because of how we feel. I'm aware of that. I'm not dismissing that out of hand. But let me say this. When we grow bored with the God of the universe, something's wrong. Something's wrong that only a fresh glimpse of Him can fix. I was reading in the commentary, and one of the quotes that grabbed my attention was this, that there are certain elements of Christian service that we may understand how someone can be bored with and, and can grow dull with. Dull sermons and uninspiring prayers and, and, and lifeless rituals wrapped in formality. But no one should ever grow bored with Jesus Christ. Something's wrong when he doesn't get us excited. Something's wrong when he doesn't stir something deep in our soul. And it's to this situation that the Lord says, and through the person of Malachi says this, you better pray to God that you'll get a fresh glimpse of God and a fresh taste of grace, because that and that alone can remedy it. He goes on to say this, will he regard your persons? In other words, if we live in rebellion long enough, God will judge us just like he has everyone else. And there's no question. Judgment for the believer is called chastisement in the Bible, and there is a distinct difference, but make no 
no bones about it, friend. You live out of the will of God long enough, and God will ring your bell. He will get your attention. Verse number 10, the Lord asks another question. Who is there even among you that would shut the doors for naught? Neither do ye kindle fire on my altar for naught. The Lord says, I have no pleasure in you, saith the Lord of hosts. Neither will I accept an offering at your hand. You know what he's saying there? When was the last time you came into the prayer closet just to talk? And don't get me wrong, most of the time when I go into the prayer closet, I've got a laundry list. But there are times in my life when I just need time with God. I don't really need anything from him, I just need him. And the Lord says this, you know how it would feel. If you've got kids, then you know how it feels. Every time they call you, they want something. They're in trouble, they're needing bail out, they're needing something. The Lord says this, when you approach me, only for what I can give you and not for who I am. And it's consistent and persistent. And that's the only reason you ever come and you treat me like some kind of Santa Claus. The Lord says, I have no pleasure in you. He says, if you don't have any pleasure in me, I don't have any pleasure in you. Verse number 11 is interesting. He talks about how the Gentiles treat his name. And this is sort of a glimpse of the millennial reign. For from the rising of the sun, even unto the going down of the same, my name shall be great among the Gentiles. And in every place incense shall be offered unto my name, and a pure offering. For my name shall be great among the heathen, saith the Lord of hosts. There is coming a day when that will be thus, but, you know, there's a sense in which there's a partial fulfillment of that right now. You know, there's places in the world where they had to go under cover of darkness and under threat of imprisonment to meet with God's people to hear the preaching of God's word yesterday. There's places where they had to go and, and the meeting place had to be whispered in secret and kept silent only so they could just meet, share little portions of scripture, hear some truth preached. And there's some folks in this city that wouldn't even roll out of bed to get into God's house. Well, I tell you, we've got, we've got a lot to answer for. He says, but ye have profaned it, in that ye say the table of the Lord is polluted, and the fruit thereof, even as meat, is contemptible. He also said, or he said also, this is interesting, behold what a weariness it is. And ye have snuffed at it, saith the Lord of hosts. You know what that is, right? If you've had teenagers, you know what that is. That's one of these. My little boy, he's tiny and he already knows how to do that. <laughs> I can't remember what was going on, but even today something happening went like that. But you know, we do that with the Lord. You know when we do that? When we say, well, I guess I'll go to church again. Well, I guess we better get this Bible out and read it. Well, I guess it's time for me to go pray. Oh, what a weariness it is. What a weariness it is. Let me tell you something. It's for that privilege that Christ went to the hill of Calvary and paid the price for your sin debt in mind. We ought not hold it lightly. He says this, And ye brought that which was torn and the lame and the sick, thus ye brought an offering. Should I accept this of your hand, saith the Lord? But cursed be the deceiver which hath in his flock a male and vowed and sacrificeth unto the Lord a corrupt thing. For I am a great king, saith the Lord of hosts, and my name is dreadful among the heathen. Can I, can I make a quick statement about this, about something that God convicts me about? You know, I, I'm a fairly young man. Maybe the Lord don't want me to say it. I don't know. I'm a fairly young man. And uh, I know that some of you, you, you grew up in a time where you got up with the chickens, and, and that was just the way you was raised and what you did. And, and 
then part of it, as you grow older in life, you know, even the book of Ecclesiastes tells us this. We'll give it just a second, won't we? You know, I saw my little boy dancing earlier. That must be, must be what caused that. Whew. How many of you have been praying for rain? I know who to talk to when I need to get a prayer through. I know who to talk to. But you may be part of that generation that grew up that way. I'm not, you know. My daddy used to get so mad because during the summer we'd stay up late. That's all right. Lord knows what we need, right? See, when I say this, I'll edit all this out and it'll be real dynamic, real exciting. I may even see if I can just change that into applause on the recording. People say, man, it's getting thick in there. You hear them people clapping and shouting? Glory! Glory! Oh my, the thunder's rolling in now. We might as well just enjoy it. Ain't nothing you can do about it. Could play hangman on that big board. We wanted to, tic-tac-toe something. Can you hear me in the back? Can you hear me? Well, I'll keep on if you can hear me. That may be playing with fire. They may not be able to hear a thing, but they're saying, yeah, yeah, go for it. <laughs> I think it's going to keep coming, ain't it? I think there's no question about that. I'm glad I'm inside tonight, aren't you? Could be on the outside. But my daddy used to get so put out, we'd sleep in, you know. And uh, one of the things the Lord has dealt with me about is this. You know, isn't it funny how the movie you want to watch, or the folks that come over, or whatever it might be, they always keep you up till about midnight, 1 o'clock on Saturday if you let them. Have you noticed that? And we have a bad tendency sometimes. Just about everybody, when they got to get up and go to work the next day, they'll say, well, i got to get going. I've got to be up in the morning. But come Saturday night, we'll stay up late. We'll drag into church half awake. You know, I'm guilty sometimes, even as a preacher, not giving everything I should to the Lord. Probably you are too. Anytime we give less than our absolute best, the Lord says, Cursed be that deceiver. That's strong language. Cursed be that deceiver. The Lord says there's a curse upon those that give less than their absolute best to me. Let's look at chapter number 2. The Lord says this, And now, O ye priests, this commandment is for you. If ye will not hear, and if ye will not lay it to heart, to give glory unto my name, saith the Lord of hosts, I will even send a curse upon you, and I will curse your blessings. Yea, I have cursed them already, 
because you do not lay it to heart. Behold, I will corrupt your seed and spread dung upon your faces, even the dung of your solemn feasts, and one shall take you away with it. Now, when the priest would offer a sacrifice in the Old Testament, when it speaks about the dung, of course, it is speaking somewhat about feces, things like that, but it's speaking about any part of the sacrifice that could not be sacrificed. One of the tasks of the Old Testament priests, and in fact, the Old Testament priests, except on the Day of Atonement, never killed the sacrifice. That was always the responsibility of the person that was giving it. But his responsibility as the priest would be to take and to flay it and to prepare it for the sacrifice. And in doing so, they'd take that part of it that could not be sacrificed, and they would take it outside of the camp and it was to be burned. And the language the Lord is giving us here is he's saying this, that which is to be discarded, he says, I'm going to place it upon your face. You're going to be part of that which is unfit and that which is to be cast out. He says in verse 4, And ye shall know that I have sent the command, this commandment unto you, that my covenant might be with Levi, saith the Lord of hosts. Now what's the Lord talking about here? Well, we know that the Old Testament priesthood was a Levitical priesthood. Only the Levites, the descendants of Levi, uh, the son of Jacob, were to be priests. But it was not always that way. In fact, all throughout, there was no priesthood throughout the 450 years. They were in exile in Egypt, and they were in bondage. But the point in which God established the Levites as the priests was whenever Moses had come down from the Mount Horeb, and they had made a golden calf and were dancing around it, and Moses took that golden calf, ground it into powder, put it in the water, made the people drink of it, but you remember that Moses said this, who's on the Lord's side? And when he said that, only the Levites stepped forth. And in that day, the Lord made a covenant and said, because you stood for me today, you'll stand for me throughout eternity. You will be the priesthood. And he's going to say some things paralleling the priests of Malachi's day with Levi and the Levites that were in Moses' day. Notice some of the things that he says. He says in verse number 5, My covenant was with them, with him of life and peace, and I gave them to him for the fear wherewith he feared me, and was afraid before my name. So he says, first off, I chose Levi because of his works, because of the decision that he made, because of the actions that he set forth. Verse number 6, he says, The law of truth was in his mouth, and iniquity was not found in his lips. He says because of the words that Levi spoke. They sided with the word of God. They sided with the commandments of the Lord. And he says, I chose Levites for that very reason. And then because of their witness. He says, he walked with me in peace and equity, and did turn many away from iniquity. He walked with me, he lived for me, and he was a testimony for me. He says, for the priest's lips should keep knowledge. They should seek the law at his mouth, for he is the messenger of the Lord of hosts. But ye have departed out of the way, ye have caused many to stumble at the law. Ye have corrupted the covenant of Levi, saith the Lord of hosts. Therefore have I also made you contemptible and base before all the people, according as ye have not kept my ways, but have been partial in the law. Let me say that the biggest problem, and, and I say this with a Almost a sting of conviction to myself. But the biggest problem in church today are the preachers. <laughs> preachers don't stand for anything. That's the problem with the church today. 
You know why the church has no respect in today's standing? It's because we don't stand for anything. We're no different than the social clubs. We're no different than the Moose Lodge. Why should the world see us and view us with respect? The Lord says about the priests in that day, because you would not stand, I've made you contemptible and base, meaning common in the eyes of the people. I think it's high time that men of God stood the way that they used to stand. There's a lot we've given up on. There's a lot we've just quit preaching on, quit talking about, we think it won't be tolerated today. Let me tell you something. In the Old Testament, even in the New Testament, and in the early church, when men of God preached, there was always persecution. But God's people always flourished. You know, maybe that's the formula. Maybe we need to stand and preach. I, I, I say I was hearing a, seeing a friend of mine put something on Facebook today. He said, the only response I can't stand when I preach is indifference. He said, I, I'd sooner have everybody in my county so mad at me that they're ready to shoot me than look at me and yawn. And as men of God and as preachers, well, we ought to preach in a way that affects people's hearts and souls and stand for something. As the people of God, you ought to seek preachers that stand and preach truth. Uh, far too long, God's people have been content and comfortable with preachers preaching on social issues, pop psychology, newspaper headlines, a lot of nonsense. We need to get back to preaching the Word of God. Let me tell you something. This book cuts coming and going. And if we'll just preach it, it'll get the job done. All the little Trinity series about building this and repairing that and fencing this and, and doing this and doing that. Uh, let me tell you something. I wouldn't take a thousand of those for one good, strong Bible message. We need to get back to the preaching of the Word of God. Verse number 10, the Lord asks another question. Through the words of Malachi, he says, Have we not all one Father? Hath not God created us? Now, he's not teaching universalism here, because he says this, Why do we deal treacherously every man against his brother by profaning the covenant of our fathers? So he's speaking distinctly here about the Jews. And he's saying this, the priests are taking advantage of the people, and the people are taking advantage of each other. When are we going to realize that if we've been born again, and I apply this to the church in the day that we live in, if we've been born again, listen, we're on the same side. Now, that doesn't mean there aren't some people that are living in such a way we have to separate from them. I'm not saying that's not the case. But I'm saying the people of God, most of our fussing and fighting is done over small things. Uh, most of the fussing and fighting done in churches is not done over big doctrinal issues. It's usually done over what color carpet's going to go in the sanctuary or, you know, what, whether we buy square tables or round tables for the fellowship hall and a bunch of nonsense. We fight a lot of unnecessary battles. And, you know, there is a spiritual warfare. And people that aren't in the battle, People that aren't in the fight, they have to pick a fight to feel like they're fighting. You get in the real fight, you won't have time for a bunch of that nonsense. You get in this real spiritual warfare, and a lot of the foolishness will just fade away in light of the true battle that is before us. Verse 11 says, Judah hath dealt treacherously, and an abomination is committed in Israel and in Jerusalem. For Judah hath profaned the holiness of the Lord, which he loved, and hath married the daughter of a strange God. Now, he's going to deal with some social sins. If you've got a Schofield Bible, he, he labels it sins against God and the family. But he's going to deal with some social sins here. And the first one is having other gods before the Lord and doing so in the marriage covenant. 
He says that the Israelites have married the daughter of a strange god. Now that tells you that they're not Jewish proselytes, but rather they're still pagan in their belief system. Maybe it was for political, maybe it was for financial means. But basically, if we could just put it bluntly, what the Lord's dealing with here is being unequally yoked. Marrying people that don't know God when you do know God. One of the greatest mistakes a young person can make that is saved is to marry an unsaved person. Now, there's been times that that mistake has been made and God's been gracious and God's been good and he saved the other spouse. Let me tell you something. For every instance like that, I can show you a hundred instances of a young person that loved God, loved the Lord, showed promise, wanted to serve God that's doing nothing now because they married somebody that didn't know God. The Lord says that the Israelites have done that, and, you know, just like water, it always finds the lowest level. And the same is true of our marriage. It says the Lord will cut off the man that doeth this, the master and the scholar, out of the tabernacles of Jacob, and him that offereth an offering unto the Lord of hosts. He says, And this have ye done again, covering the altar of the Lord with tears, with weeping and with crying out, insomuch that he regardeth not the offering any more, or receiveth it with good will at your hand. You know what that's saying? Now, I'd be careful in how I say this, because I don't want to misrepresent this. I'm glad that no matter how many times I mess up, I can go to the Lord. I'm glad for that. But what he's saying is this, you're doing wrong, you're knowing it's wrong, you, you, you keep doing wrong, the same thing over and over and over and over again, and coming in and trying to put an offering on my altar and weep and cry. You've seen people do that before, right? People that talked about getting victory over sin but never had any intention of getting victory over a particular sin in their life. And uh, they come into the house of God, uh, you know, service get good, things get thick, people start testifying, all of a sudden, here they're up and the waterworks are going, oh, I've, I've messed up again, I've messed up again, I've messed up again. And the Lord says this, you come in, you cover my altar with tears, and you give another sacrifice, but you go out the door with every intention of committing the same sin again. There's no real true repentance. We preached yesterday morning on repentance. Repentance is still a Bible doctrine. There are not very many doctrines in the Word of God that transcend dispensational boundaries, but there are a few. Grace is one. There was grace in the Old Testament. Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. Faith is another. It's always been by faith. It's never been by the works of the law. It's always been by faith. Repentance is another one. Repentance transcends dispensational boundaries. Adam had to repent in the Garden of Eden. We still have to repent today. God commandeth all men everywhere to repent, Acts chapter 17 says. And true repentance has the intention of living right and doing right. It doesn't mean you're always going to do right. But it's nothing but sheer hypocrisy to come to the Lord and ask forgiveness over something that you have every intention of doing again. Uh, don't waste your time making vain, empty promises to God that you're never going to mess up again. That's a waste of time. But by the same token, don't leave the altar with the mentality of I'm just going to go out and live the same way again. That's hypocrisy of the ugliest form. He says this, verse number 14, Yet ye say, Wherefore? Why? Why? Because the Lord hath been witness between thee and the wife of thy youth, against whom thou hast dealt treacherously. Yet is she thy companion and the wife of thy covenant. And he did not make one, Yet he had the res yet had he the residue of the spirit, and wherefore one, that he might seek a godly seed. Therefore take heed to your spirit, 
and let none deal treacherously against the wife of his youth. For the Lord, the God of Israel, saith that he hateth putting away. For one covereth violence with his garment, saith the Lord of hosts. Therefore take heed to your spirit that ye deal not treacherously. Now what is, what's being set before us here? The Lord says, I'm tired of your sacrifices. And they say, well why, Lord, wherefore? And he says, this is why, because I see the consequences of your sin. The dynamic was this. Jewish men that had married the wife of their youth, a, a young woman that, that was at least a practicing Jewish person, they, they, they pursued the covenants and the things of God. They were the wife of the covenant. But they came to a place where it was financially or politically expedient, so they divorced that wife, so they'd take a wife of a daughter of a strange God. And the Lord says this, I see that young lady weeping. I see her heartache and her heartbreak. The Lord says, I see the consequence of your sin. We have a very interesting commentary on divorce here. And people ask me all the time, Preacher, what do you think about divorce? Uh, well, I don't like it. <laughs> um, you say, Preacher, does that mean that, uh, you know, that people that get divorced, they can't serve God? No, that's not what I'm saying. Uh, that's not a commentary of the morality of divorce. I'm just telling you that divorce is an ugly thing. The only people that ever defend divorce is people that ain't never been divorced. Anybody that's been divorced, right, wrong, or indifferent, they at least know it's a terrible, ugly thing. And, and it, it hurts homes, and it hurts people. i got the same opinion God has. The Lord says, wherefore I hate putting away. You say, what's putting away? Well, you remember in the New Testament, Christ said if a man put away his wife, uh, you know, let him give her a bill of divorcement. That's that's another word for divorce. God says, I, I hate divorce because I see what it does. Now, you can be mad at me if you want, uh, but if you've ever been through one, you hate it probably more than I do because you know how bad it hurts and what it does to homes and to children. And the Lord gives this truth. He says, did he not make one? Well, one what? One wife. He didn't make Adam six or seven and let him pick. He made Adam one. Made him Eve. I hope she's pretty because that was all he's getting. Amen? You know? And the Lord says this. He had the residue of the Spirit. In other words, he could have made another one if he wanted to. Let me say this. Polygamy was never part of God's plan. There were times when God winked at that sin. But let me say this. That polygamy in the Old Testament always brought heartache. Always, always, always brought heartache. Any time in the Old Testament you saw a man with multiple wives, it always brought heartache. There was always despair and jealousy and anger and bitterness every time. When the Lord structured the perfect home, he created man and said, it's not good for man to be alone. And so he made woman. And he gave him Eve. He had the ability to do anything that he wanted. Why did he do that? Wherefore, one, that he might seek a godly seed. In other words, the Lord says this, the reason is because that's the best way for a home. That's the best way. Now, again, I, people are, you know, people are people. People make mistakes. People mess up. Do you know that? People mess up. It happens. I don't know if you live in a perfect world, but I don't. But, you know, I've got loved ones that, that, that married the wrong person to end in divorce. And sometimes they marry the right person and it still ends in divorce. And it's a harsh, horrible thing. But let me tell you something. We don't have to reconstruct God's word to make an allowance for our mistakes. It's sufficient just to say, hey, I messed up, or they messed up. 
We don't have to go in and reformulate God's word and try to twist things around to make it seem like God endorses divorce just because we went through a bad experience and had a hard time. God hates it. And anybody that's been through it, they hate it too. It's hard on children. If there's anybody that hates it, it's children that have been through it. I don't say that to burden anyone or to lay blame. It's just a reality of it. The Lord says this, and here's the deeper spiritual truth here. He says, I see the consequence of your sin. He says, I see how it hurts people. And that's why I hate it. Let me tell you something. God, God doesn't, God doesn't place a bunch of rules in our life just to give us something to occupy our time. God gives boundaries because we need boundaries. God calls sin, sin, not because he needs something to call sin, but because sin is sin. And he loves us enough to point out what sin is. Sin is a hurtful and harmful thing. And what he's saying is this. You assume everything's okay. He says, but I see that, I see that young woman weeping. And I see those children without a father. The Lord says, because of that, I hate what it's doing to your society. Well, they ask another question. It says, you have wearied the Lord with your words. Yet you say, wherein have we wearied him? When you say, everyone that doeth evil is good in the sight of the Lord, and he delighteth in them, or where is the God of judgment? It's interesting what the Lord says here. And we're just going to kind of breeze through the last two verses very, very quickly, or the last two chapters. But you know what he says here? He says, I'm tired of hearing this. You've wearied me with this argument. And they say, well, what argument? When you say, oh, the evil are prospering and God's people are downtrodden. Now, that may seem sort of callous, but you've got to remember that in 11 minor prophets that we've read, pretty much the universal theme has been this. God judges evildoers. God preserves those that love him. For hundreds of years, God had been teaching this truth to them. Through empire after empire that had crumbled and fallen, he's been teaching them this. And they say, once again, not because they really wonder, but because it's an excuse for their sin and their lifestyle. They say, where's the God of judgment? Well, we see a millennial view here, a prophetic view, and it, and it goes into the millennium. Verse number 1 of chapter 3, Behold, I will send my messenger, and he shall prepare the way before me. Now, we know that's John the Baptist, right? And the Lord whom ye seek shall suddenly come to his temple. Even the messenger of the covenant whom ye delight in, behold, he shall come, saith the Lord of hosts. But who may abide the day of his coming? Who shall stand when he appeareth? For he is like a refiner's fire and like fuller's soap. And he shall sit as a refiner and purifier of silver. He shall purify the sons of Levi and purge them as gold and silver, that they may offer unto the Lord an offering in righteousness. Then shall the offering of Judah and Jerusalem be pleasant unto the Lord, as in the days of old and as in the former years. And I will come near to you to judgment, and I will be a swift witness against the sorcerers and against the adulterers and against false swearers and against those that oppress the hireling in his wages, the widow and the fatherless, and that turn aside the stranger from his right. And fear not me, saith the Lord of hosts, for I am the Lord. I change not. Therefore, you sons of Jacob are not consumed. They say, where is the God of judgment? Now, all of a sudden, in a fiery glimpse, the Lord gives Malachi a picture of the coming day of judgment. There's a stark warning to the Jews because he says, I'm coming to purify and purge you like fuller's soap, like the refiner's fire. I'm coming to purge the dross off of the, the silver and the impurities out of the soap. I'm coming to purify you. But he also gives them this warning or this word of hope and encouragement. He says this, I'm the Lord and I change not. Therefore, you sons of Jacob are not consumed. 
They say, where's the God of judgment to judge the evildoers? The Lord says, I'm coming to judge the evildoers, but I'm also coming to judge my people. There is a day of judgment coming. The Bible says judgment begins first at the house of God. You say, when's that? Well, that's the judgment seat of Christ. That's the next judgment that's coming. It's to face for the believer to face the judgment seat of Christ. begins first at the house of God. God's going to judge us. We just better understand when we're all calling for God's judgment on our nation or on this world, the judgment begins first with us and we better get our hearts and lives right. But understand too with this that the Lord changes not. And those that have put their faith in him will not be concerned. Verse 7 says, Even from the days of your fathers, you are gone away from mine ordinances and have not kept them. Return unto me, and I will return unto you, saith the Lord of hosts. But you said, Wherein shall we return? How are we going to return, is what they asked. Now let me interject something interesting here. One of the things that developed in between the Testaments uh, was the Talmud. Do you know what the Talmud is? The Talmud is the oral law that the Jews formulated. The Torah was the Old Testament. Uh, but the Talmud was the oral law that they developed. It's sort of a rabbinical commentary, uh, lists of, of judgments that rabbis had made throughout the years, and then commentaries on, on those judgments and applications of them. When, when Christ talked about ye, ye received the traditions of men, he was talking about the Talmud. Let me tell you something to beware of. I, I know that, you know, you see preachers on TV and a lot of these guys that have a charismatic background, they deal a lot with Bible prophecy and, and things like that. You better be very careful because a lot of the information they get and are applying did not come from the Old Testament. It came from the Talmud from the rabbinical writings. A lot of times when they talk about there's an old, uh, you know, rabbi tale or there's an old rabbi tradition, rabbinical tradition, they're talking about the Talmud. The reason they nailed Christ to a cross was because he stood against the Talmud. That's why. Because he condemned their oral law. That's why they nailed him to a cross. That is what brought upon him the scorn and anger of the Sanhedrin, the Pharisees, and the Sadducees. They say, how are we going to return to the Lord? Well, it's interesting that the Lord does not answer that. I think the reason why the Lord doesn't answer it, at least not at this very moment, is because they know how. You say, how do we return to God? We just return to the Bible. It's that simple. How do we fix our country? We go back to the book. How do we fix our homes? We go back to the book. How do we fix our kids? We go back to the book. How do we return to the Lord? We return through the Word of God. Listen to this scathing condemnation God gives. He says, will a man rob God? Of course, the answer is no. Man wouldn't do that. He says, yet you have robbed me. But you say, wherein have we robbed thee? In tithes and offerings. He says, you are cursed with a curse. For you have robbed me, even this whole nation. Bring ye all the tithes into the storehouse, that there may be meat in mine house, and prove me now, herewith, saith the Lord of hosts, if I will not open you the windows of heaven, and pour you out a blessing, that there shall not be room enough to receive it. And I will rebuke the devourer for your sakes, and he shall not destroy the fruits of your ground, neither shall your vine cast your fruit before the time in the field, saith the Lord of hosts. Uh, now, I'm not going to say a lot about this, but let me just say this. Folks say, I don't have enough money to tithe. You don't have enough money to not tithe. It's one piece of advice that my daddy gave me growing up. Uh, my brother said to him one time, I can't afford to tithe. He said, you can't afford not to. I can show a distinct 
distinct, immediate, marked difference in my financial well-being if I withhold what belongs to God. And you will too. You will too. But it goes beyond that. It's not just money. It's also time and things like that. We ought to give the Lord first. Verse 12, And all nations shall call you blessed. For ye shall be a delightsome land, saith the Lord of hosts. Again, this is a millennial statement. Verse 13, Your words have been stout against me, saith the Lord. Yet ye say, What have we spoken so much against thee? Ye have said it is vain to serve God. And what profit is it that we have kept his ordinance, and that we have walked mournfully before the Lord of hosts? And now we call the proud happy. Yea, they that work wickedness are set up. Yea, they that tempt God are even delivered. The very last quote-unquote question that they offer, the very, or that God offers them, the very last statement that they make, you understand this closes the Old Testament. They say it's vain to serve God. It's vain to serve God. That, that was the length that the law could bring man to. You ever think about that? The law, the Bible says, was our schoolmaster to bring us to Christ. So the book of Galatians says, our schoolmaster to bring us to Christ. You know what the end of the law was? It's vain to serve the Lord. We can't do it. It's impossible. We cannot. What does the Lord say? Again, millennial language here about the faithful remnant. Then they that feared the Lord spake often one to another, and the Lord hearkened and heard it. The book of remembrance was written before him for them that feared the Lord and that thought upon his name. And they shall be mine, saith the Lord of hosts, in that day when I make up my jewels. And I will spare them as man spareth his own son that serveth him. Then shall you return and discern between the righteous and the wicked, between him that serveth God and him that serveth him not. Isn't it good to know that in the midst of this wicked world we live in, God still keeps a record of those that love him and serve him? Isn't it good to know he's still keeping a record of that? Chapter 4, just six short verses. For behold, the day cometh that shall burn as an oven, and all the proud, yea, and all that do wickedly shall be stubble. And the day that cometh shall burn them up, saith the Lord of hosts, that it shall leave them neither root nor branch. But unto you that fear my name shall the Son of Righteousness arise, with healing in his wings, and ye shall go forth and grow up as calves of the stall. That's Millennial prophecies given that the Lord is going to return and he's going to come with healing for the Jewish nation in his wings. Ye shall tread down the wicked, for they shall be ashes under the soles of your feet in the day that I shall do this, saith the Lord of hosts. The Old Testament ends with a statement about two individuals. First is Moses. It says, Remember ye the law of Moses, my servant, which I commanded unto him in Horeb for all Israel with the statutes and judgments. It ends by saying this, you're about to enter 400 years of silence, you better cling tight to the word of God. In the day we live in, there's a famine for truth. Uh, it's everywhere, but men don't walk in it. You better cling close to this Bible. It's the most precious thing that you have in your possession. The second person is Elijah. It says, Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the coming of the great and dreadful day of the Lord. And he shall turn the heart of the fathers to the children and the heart of the children to their fathers, lest I come and smite the earth with a curse. This was fulfilled, in a sense, in John the Baptist. Christ taught us that, that John the Baptist came in the spirit of Elijah. I don't have time to go into all of it, but uh, if the Jews had accepted Christ, now we know that wasn't going to happen, the Lord knew that wasn't going to happen, but things were structured in such a way he could have set up the kingdom right then if he had chose to. John the Baptist would have been that Elijah. To this day, Jews, when they prepare the Passover Seder, they still have a fifth cup. That's supposed to be the cup for Elijah. 
They're still looking for that day when Elijah will come. The Bible teaches Elijah will come. Now, you may not believe this, and you can fuss, fight if you want, but I'll tell you what I believe. Revelation chapter 11 tells us about two witnesses. I believe them to be Moses and Elijah. If you want to believe they're Enoch and Elijah, that's fine. Probably won't keep you out of heaven. <laughs> but I believe that it's Moses and Elijah. I believe that the same way that the time of the Old Testament ended with Moses and Elijah, the time of the New Testament will end with Moses and Elijah. And the new dispensation will be rung in, the dispensation of the millennial reign. Boy, what a day that's going to be, isn't it? It seems like every time that we've closed out one of these books, the Minor Prophets, I found myself closing this way by saying, what a day that's going to be. <laughs> you say, why is that, preacher? Because what a day that's going to be when the Lord reigns in Zion. Let's close out in a word. I appreciate your patience, by the way, tonight. We had we got rained out there for a minute. had a rain delay. I appreciate I know we're a little later than we have been, but I appreciate your patience so we could finish. Let's pray.